Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today I'm speaking with writer Craig Slee, whose work covers the intersections between disability, environment, philosophy, storytelling, magic, and myth. For a very long time, I've been I write about sort of the intersections of uh, myth, uh, folklore, and you know creativity and disability because I'm a disabled person. I have cerebral palsy. I use a wheelchair. I'm even a recent amputee because I had uh, I had half my foot amputated. So disability is basically my life. Um, from a very early age, I um, well I wrote to express myself. Um, and so for a very long time, I've been writing about sort of the intersection of uh, the ideas of myth, you know, that it's the classic idea of perhaps the monster or the edge person, you know, sitting on the edge and perhaps mediating with a different world or an outside world. And over time, um, because I've been very influenced by the fact that I did uh, two degrees in philosophy, you know, it, it uh, became this this sort of, as well as being tied into sort of vague forays into disability studies, it became this, this idea of rather than placing um, uh, the disabled or, or, or shall we say, the uh, marginalized people on the outside. The fact that we've, you know, we've always been here historically is the important part uh, to me. And yes, well, well, there's the outsider level. There is this idea that um, perhaps because of their difference, um, whether that be in terms of disability or body shape or sexuality or whatever, they see a different world. You know, they see have to deal with different things, uh, different circumstances, whether that be from over oppression or structural differences due to disability or whatever. And people like that have always always been present throughout history. I mean, the classic one is, you know, when people say, oh, you know, ancient times They'd leave disabled people out to die if they weren't viable and things like that. And that's um, that's true in some cases, but there's there's archaeological evidence that people who were um, disabled were actually, you know, if not given central roles in, in various societies, even back to the Neanderthals, that, there's, that they were cared for, that in essence people put... Um, effort into taking care of them and the idea that since we've always been here the roles that we've played are perhaps something that that has always uh, been with us and the idea that there's somebody in a society who always through no fault of their own through sheer circumstance or whatever sees the world differently it started me thinking well what would that do to to a culture to a to a small group of people who were wandering around or doing whatever they were doing and you've got this person going hey i i I see something really differently and that person wasn't necessarily exile they were cared for what if that person was like no what if you do it this way and this way and over time it, it sort of started blending with the idea of uh you know, the, the old chestnut of perhaps the the magical figure, you know, the monster, all these things which have been talked about in so many ideas of theory of other and divinity and, and monstrousness. I started to think maybe that rather than doing this from the outside, they do it from the center. So less of the idea of almost the 
the village, to use a, to use a metaphor, and more the. Um, I mean, one of the things I've talked about is is more the weaver, more the central of the Norns, the the weird sisters. All this idea that these centralizing figures who give structure to to a a world, to a culture, and the idea that every time you come as a disabled person, every time you come up against something new, uh, whether that be a um, a new place you're going or a new um, new work, new job, new situation, you have to work out your way of doing things. So there's this constant going back to first principles, if you like. And I see myself, uh, as we're writing this, sort of sitting there going, well, there's always that part where you have to sit and you have to think about what you've done. So you almost, in a sense, that these sort of things start percolating in the back of my head. And I start thinking about the idea that you can go down almost into a pre-structural sense, a primordial sense. So the the way I've phrased it in, in some of the things that I've written is is it's almost like a um, a going down into the underworld, a, a catabiasis, you know, and, and you come up and you have to work with this raw material to construct a way to exist in whatever situation um, you're in, whether that be, okay, well, I need to use a disability aid in this particular situation that I don't normally use, but that whole reflex um, and how... You know, this idea of being able to see in another way is sort of almost central to a living, breathing culture. There's always going to come that point where somebody's going to have to go, hey, I'm going to have to stop you there or overturn what you're thinking about. You know, it's like disability rights. People are always sort of pushing, going, hey, guys. You have to think about architecture. You have to think about these things in a new way. And there's always that um, poesis, always that bringing forth of a new set of ideas. And I think that that is, that is a role that I'm happy. That's what I do with my writing in a sense. I'm, I'm trying to go down into these mythological, these murky unconscious, almost these uncult, occult angles and sort of bring them up and say the world is far weirder in the strictest old English sense of it with a Y than your average structure of the world, you know, would seem to be. Um, and, and I, that's, that's really kind of central to what I do is, is sort of connecting the weird stuff up. But, I, th I think it's not just a a new role or something like that, a new identity. I think it's something that, without being um, too too qualified, uh, too qualified, has always been there. It's it's not something that maybe people have noticed, but if we've always been here, it's always been done if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. in that way, it's a very valuable perspective and inventive and creative. Yeah, yeah, I think the the creative aspect is, is something um, that is important to me. And I think it's important to everybody. I mean, the art, um, even, you know, the, the impulse towards religion, communication, you know, all these things, they're creative. They, they bring things forth. And I think for me that's fascinating because you end up wondering what are they bringing it forth from? What's, what's the raw material, you know? And, and we have all these 
myths, these legends, these perhaps personal strange experiences that that pro- provide the uh, the raw material. But there's always the mind is trying to make sense of things. The mind is trying to structure things. And I think almost creativity is creating paths, ways to understand things, ways to to give p- things context. And I think the role of a creator far from a um you know fiat lux and then that's that's it you know everything is running as is is a is a constant role it's a constant point where you you can't really stop because if you if you do that you kind of do it without trying your your brain is always running that way and and it becomes becomes very difficult to stop I think sometimes um yeah and it's like a skill set or a way of being in the world that you develop and hone and change and yeah I think the way of being in the world is a very interesting thing because so many people have ideas about you know fixed oh, you have to be this way, you have to be that way. But when you get into the creativity aspect, you often end up taking on so many shapes or trying so many different ways that you can't really say, well, I am a you know, creator of this or a creator of that because that's only trying, for, for other people in a sense, that's sort of saying, you know, if I say I'm an artist, people go, ah, oh, that, you're that or... I'm a poet, but I think the impulse, the raw impulse, which drives people to do that, isn't necessarily, oh, you know, I I must do art. What they're actually saying is I must create, and art is my particular way of doing that. Mm-hmm. But I think um, the impulse is capable of shape-shifting if you see what i mean just mm-hmm. just in the in the way that um you'd give it a different structure um i think the the impulse is something that i personally try to embrace and you know it's the curse of many writers who sit there and go i wish i could draw i wish i could make the pictures in my head uh instead of all i've got is words but um yeah i i think there is a, a great deal of importance. And I think from my perspective, creating other paths is what I do just, just in terms of the connection between what has been in terms of going into the past. So I often look at sort of ancient mythologies and go, hey, how is that? you know, relevant to the human experience today um, and spend a lot of time sort of my my favorite sort of myth cycle is the Norse myths. But, uh, you know, it, it's I will I will happily um, be be interested in many other mythological structures, because as far as I'm concerned, myth is what happens when whatever there is, whether it's just life itself or environment or landscape or maybe even something spiritual that makes contact with the human mind and people make stories about it they, they create narratives they create shapes for things to make sense so i think um and obviously there's been research done that suggests as an example some of the fairy tales that we know have bits which are thousands of years old so i think there's a sort of weird continuity there as well that keeps being reborn in uh, every generation or or you know as, as time goes on mm-hmm. what do you like about the norse myths in particular <sighs> to be honest for me the norse myths um one um the structure of the idea of of weird which is that there is this uh, um it's not so much fate as in predestination, but there are <sighs> there are consequences for actions, and everything is interlinked. So 
you've got plenty of sagas which are um oh you know x person gets messed up because of something their grandfathers did or a deal they they or their family line did with a god or, or whatever there, there is this sense of interlinking consequence mm-hmm. that i think um we need today we need to literally go hey you know there's consequences for capitalism there's consequences for you know the the interlinking of our environment even the interlinking of a, of a society we are i mean the the internet as far as i'm concerned has has made it obvious even more obvious that we are everything we do touches everybody else but equally i think there's the what i enjoy about it is that <laughs> there's almost this weird sense of fatalism to to Norse myth, and you could argue that the myths of Ragnarok are a, a Christian interpolation of, of, based on, you know, because obviously they, they were recorded in sort of 13th century. So they're based off a non-Christian tradition that got Christianized and then then obviously written down by a, by a, a Christian for, to keep a piece of poetic or an idea of poetic culture around. But there is a sense that... You know, the gods aren't all powerful. Gods can screw up, you know, and indeed the gods screwing up, if you go with, with Ragnarok, is, is suddenly one take that they screwed up. They broke the rules that kept the society running and it all went to pot. But equally what I like is almost the um, the uncompromising nature, not in a yeah, barbarian sword sort of way, but in the, no, this is life as it is. Mm-hmm. You know, there isn't really an escapism, if you like. And, and I guess you can see that, that level of almost hard-nosed pragmatism uh, across sort of Indo-European mythology. But I think the, the Norse are the best sort of exemplars of that, that level of, hey, you know, we, we live our lives and it's hard sometimes. It's really hard. And sometimes we have to do things um, in that way. So, you know, I, I spend my time, I live in the north of England, so, you know, there's a lot of, um, well, for starters, there's a, we found, there was a horde, you know, found not sort of um, 40 miles away from where I was, you know, that was put in the local museum. So there's, there's a lot of the history there, but it's equally, um, yeah, I think, I think, the importance is that the gods are very, um, uh, as far as Norse mythology goes, are very um, easy to recognize. They're easy to, to, to see ourselves in, mm. you know. Um, and, and say what you like about, you know, Greek myths, the idea of, you know, the gods on Mount Olympus and occasionally coming down. Norse myth, you've got the gods wandering through the world almost pretty much constantly. Most of the stories involve, in fact, the gods passing through the human world on their way to doing something else or, or, you know, there's always the sense that the the numinous or whatever... is not outside the human world. It's actually in the middle of it. And you never quite know when that moment of something you thought was normal isn't so normal anymore, you know, and and that recontextualizes the whole thing. I think the thing that always amuses me most about Norse myth is the, uh, it's in the saga, the, the, the Volsung saga. And there's this sort of great wedding um, I can't even remember which between which characters, but uh, there's a great wedding and everybody's there's a whole bunch of um, argument because it's a political alliance and it all gets a little bit screwed up because an old man in a broad brimmed hat just walks into the wedding, you know, and sticks a sword the sword in the tree and you know there's a whole squabble over the sword. And it's just this thing of going, yeah, this, this uh, Odin shows up, you know, it's, it's, 
the idea that it's not you have to go to this particular special place to meet gods. And indeed, for many people, I would imagine, who are having the, the and experiencing them at the time, you don't want to attract the gods' attention because it all goes to proverbial shit. <laughs> you know, he, uh, gods get involved, you know. We'd quite like a quiet life. But, yeah, I think... For me, it's a, it's a weird sense of getting the ideas and the experiences behind myths can still happen to us while we're going about our ordinary lives. Mm. So you don't need to be particularly holy or in church or, or you know, um, particularly seek stuff out. You just have to keep your eyes open and your mouth shut. <laughs> Bluntly is 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 what it's about for me, and that's difficult because I obviously like to talk. But um, you know, it's I find it comforting, particularly in a world where we seem to be going down the pan in terms of climate change and and a lot of things going on. To go, actually, you know, we're not we're not so far from our ancestors in terms of an environment which wasn't brilliant for us, you know, we're, we may end up getting back to the levels of actually it's quite tough to survive. You know, we've got a little, um, I would say, used to having our world structured as a really stable thing. And I think, I don't think that, not in a doomsaying way perhaps, but I, I think perhaps the idea of, um, you know, coming together and, and being more connected to each other, which is the idea of frith, the idea of being woven together, is, is, is important. Because when it all goes to crap, you need people you can rely on to help you survive. And there's a weird sort of unity, I think, in that as well. So what are you working on now? Um, at the moment, I'm actually working sort of on, on more ideas of the the um, piece on, on the Crip cult, which is, uh, you know, uh, the uh, again, the idea that um, cripples, the, the bent people, um, whether physically or mentally, shall we say, um, are, you know, have always been here and sort of, the implications of what that means in the sense that um, not just not just what we can do <laughs> in terms of it, uh, a job advertisement, as it were, but what that implies about the flexibility of the world. Because obviously from a from a disability point of view, the when you need things to change, it's very difficult. You know, the the example I'm thinking of right now is um, when I was at uni, and they um, conveniently at that point put me in a lecture in a lecture theatre that was up three flights of stairs, and I was like. Hey, you know, I'm in a wheelchair and I can't actually get in this lecture theater. And it took them about a month for timetabling to to get it sorted. And there's this whole idea, obviously, that disability legislation and things like that are supposed to make it easier, you know, and it does, don't get me wrong. I mean, the classic example of that one was, you know, 20 years ago, I couldn't go for a drink in a, in a pub um, because it, they wouldn't have accessible toilets. So, you know. Um, but, yeah, it, it takes time. And what we have from the cult perspective is, you know, how do you acknowledge and how does the idea of how we see time change things. If we're trapped in a 
different kind of time and and people are you know when when you are looking at how long it takes you to do things if you've got a disability some things which someone might get done in five minutes might take you half an hour might knock you out for a week you know it depends on your disability but how that differing perception of time um really affects how we see the world and also what we are capable of creating you know because if we really embrace that difference of, of um uh, difference sense in time what does that do to our perception of both ourselves and what does that also do to how we see the world and is this you know beneficial or is it not to to try and embrace this this um this different time and again what are the implications of that do we actually you know forgive the term but do we actually end up with a, a different space-time entirety you know are, are we and is that because the whole essence of, of what i'm saying with with the cripco idea is that we are we're not apart as in we're not separate we're actually at the center so if there's people who experience this different time at the center of society you know at the center of culture at the center of what needs to be what does that mean can we can we impart this different sense of 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 time to people through creative work um and not just by saying oh yeah this is my experience it takes me you know two hours to wash some dishes but i actually go no 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 how do we create that almost that sense of duration in the bugsonian sense um of you know that that strangeness of life because the whole point as well with crypto is so for so long disability has been associated with sickness and death you know it and my point very much in the things that I'm trying to do is what if it's the other way around what if while you recognize people who are able body recognize us as you know bent and and have this weird sort of fear of they're going to end up like that when they get old you know what if we're saying no look there's a vitality here there's a vitality in this bentness there's a, even a vitality in being old and near death there is a different perhaps a different kind of vitality that is than that which is fetishized today by our society of the eternal urge towards youth you know that and and to try and structure that but when i'm writing about it it's it's difficult because obviously you don't want it to become too much of a personal confessional here because people get bored with that so you need to relate it to a certain um sense to to the wider world to keep it connected because otherwise you do end up getting siloed off and it becomes you know something that is relevant to a particular group of people but isn't more widely relevant and i think the key for me is trying to keep that connection so you can pass things along the connection and to be honest as i'm writing about it it's it's kind of difficult i've gone through two drafts already where i'm just like no this is either too academic or 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 too sort of um too esoteric if you like for um for people to get and i mean my writing is is not i am aware of this for everybody at this point i've got to the point where i'm just like I'll write what I write and if people like it screw it um but at the same time trying to to con- conceptualize my own sense of time in my own body and then put that in a page or on a page rather and try and convey that in a way which people can get and isn't just like we're not going to get it because we're not you of course you're not going to get it but the point 
for me as a writer, as a communicator, is to try and transmit some tiny semblance, just a tiny seed, enough to make people go, oh, that's a, another way of doing it. Mm. And just once that tiny seed is, is set, but it takes a hell of a lot of groundwork, um, especially because we don't have representation of disabled people very much in media in a positive fashion. Um, we don't have um, exemplars, if you like. We don't have people to go, you know, obviously time's moving on and you're getting people, um, and rightly so, of, of different ethnicities, of, of different sexualities appearing in media. But disability is way, way behind. So it's kind of hard to go, no, we're not just placeholder in wheelchair here. We, we are literally talking uh, about the body, about how that affects things, and to try and create a, a relation for people to, to connect with. Because, you know, <laughs> we've written things and had people go, you know, I'm sure we both have, uh, had people go, I don't get what you're trying to to do here. And, and it's like, well, it's obvious to us and it's obvious to a whole bunch of other people, but in general, it doesn't make that connection. And while you're always going to fail to connect with everybody, the, the, the key point, I think, is to try and make it something that is capable of connecting. So it's really difficult for me to to do. But, yeah, that's mostly what I'm working on. And banging, a, banging my head against a... a, a recall is that it's the time and the embodiment aspect um yeah, i think it's a good point too of this over pathologization that's something i'm really focused on too like why are all these experiences that are part of the human experience pathologized mm, they mm. should be included as like this huge diverse spectrum of human experience and not like this is this is the norm, and then these are all deviations of the norm. Because if you add up all the deviations, there's a lot more of those mm. than the, than the supposed norm. You know? oh, yeah. Like who is yeah. this? Who is this norm? I've never met one. You know. <laughs> and and again, it's it's there is the fact that deep within the heart of the norm, shall we say, there is a deviance. Mm -hmm. You know, the the core of the norm is essentially a deviance that that got you know well normalized um that there is always going to be that that point where it gets adopted and i think finding that that the fact that we go you can turn around to the norm and go hey we know you're as much of, or a different kind of freak than you know this this stuff which you've designated not freak, or, or rather, you've designated freak, and, and we're like, no, 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 no. Seriously, this, this idea of the norm—you can slice it an infinite number of ways, and each one of those ways will actually be different. Mm. You know, it's it's a weird perceptual quirk that humans have. We love to group things into categories, but actually, <laughs> we're shaving the edges off to make them fit the boxes. You know, and, and the key points are those differences. So, yeah, I think you're, you're very much right. Yeah, I saw Alan Moore speak at this trans states conference in Northampton yeah. uh, two years ago, I guess. And uh, he said, you know, humans have just been categorizing and dividing and dividing into like smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller categories for so mm. long. And now, you know, he really sees like magic as the kind of basis of kind of everything and he thinks things need to start getting integrated integrated more and more again so we can get back to this more holistic yeah. view i mean i think from my point of view if we're talking about magic then yeah i i would broadly agree with them um because i think if you if you look at it historically and you look at uh today's people who who are what we consider practitioners a lot of it is going, hey, this is this is interconnected. You know, there is that point where, you know, from the classic demonic hierarchies, you know, 
all of those in the medieval senses were all connected in a system. Yes, they laid over um, the the idea of a European monarchy, but there were there were still connections between these these spirits. And I think you know, it's not only that we've been categorizing for uh, a long time. We've also been individualizing, but not in the sense of holistic individuals, which are composed of many parts and and many relationships, but in this isolated individualism, which um, I think everybody's desperate to be the norm. You know, everybody, you know, we're marketed to to at to have this this exemplar to have i don't know the most beautiful body you know all these things they're always marketed and people are treated like uh indi- you can say you know it's a classic monty python sketch isn't it we're all individuals you know says the crowd <laughs> and there's only one guy who's like i'm not but um yeah i think when it comes to magic, the the interlinkings between people, the the and the world, uh, and not just the world as an abstract, but but landscape. I think that's that's other things that I've written about is the interplay between the self and the landscape. I mean, it's it's what we eat, what we drink. You know, there's a reason archaeology can go ah. This person came here because they find the isotopes in the teeth, you know, and and that gets into whole other things. But ultimately, you know, I've said privately and and I think I've blogged about it several times. You know, if you're in an environment, the closest thing you're going to get to local every single time is probably your tap water. Because your tap water, if you're able to drink it, of course, um, courses through tunnels under the earth. It's probably from a reservoir that's relatively local. There's going to be those isotopes. It's going to be that those minerals. And if you're taking that into your body, if you're washing in that, you are surrounding yourself with your environment. You're never not... There's, there's this weird human idea that we are like separate from it. But obviously we're enmeshed in it. But if we think about what we do every day in our normal 21st century society, we don't think of ourselves as part of the environment. We are. If you're cooking your pasta with tap water, you know, I realize this is like a weird logical extension, but we are so embedded in this and how we relate to our environment. And we don't even know we're doing it. Part of magic for me is working out that you are doing it at the time and going, hey, maybe I should like deliberately interact with it rather than do it like randomly like a robot or responding to social pressures. But it's actually going, hey, whoa, <laughs> you know, we're here now. But also the reason we're here now is because of all these things in the past, be it our ancestors, but also our environment. So, yeah, the, the constant slicing has a, this interesting thing for me because from a philosophy point of view, I spent a lot of time during my undergrad bending my head around new concepts. And, you know, you, you start slicing things down, breaking them down into constituent points to construct arguments. And you keep slicing, you keep slicing, you keep slicing. And you're never going to hit bottom. But what you are going to hit perhaps, is a, wait a minute, almost like Democritus with his atomism going, everything's made of this tiny, these tiny things. So it doesn't matter how much you slice it, it's all part of something bigger. And I think that reflects to, to it's part of something bigger. Is, yeah, like, like Alan Moore says, it's what we need. And it's the only way we're going to survive as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Because especially from a disability point of view, like I've had people criticize me for going, oh, you're so focused on survival, you know? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not talking about, you know, 
survivalism here. I'm talking about the things you need to do to get by in the world, whatever environment you're in. And a lot of people don't get that. They don't get that, you know, disabled people end up running a calculus of, of what they need to do, whether that be how much energy they're spending or, um, you know, depending on their income stream, wherever they're coming from, whether it's on disability or, or because of their jobs, can they afford this? But they require X for their care. So, And it, there's a whole level of precariousness that, you know, people don't think about disabled people having. But that, that precariousness is something that our ancestors understood quite well because mm -hmm. they didn't have that technology. They didn't have that ability to make things, quote, safe, you know. Um, and that is why I think I'm, I'm very much attracted to both North Smith, but also I'm in no way a primitivist because I'd be dead if I was a primitivist because technology keeps me alive. But I think that lessons of learning how to be in the world can be taken from, from bits of the conserved past, if you see what I mean. I don't think, I think the progress myth, shall we say, is, is one of the most dangerous myths there is because it doesn't take into the fact that failure happens, you know, that, that things can go wrong. If you're disabled, you may know that if you do one thing wrong in what you're doing, you might end up in a lot of trouble, you know, whether that be as something as, as, sim as simple as you know, slipping when you transfer from your wheelchair or, or, you know, I don't know, eating something that you're actually violently allergic to that will knock you out for a couple of days or, or whatever. You know, there's always that moment where you have to be very careful. And, yeah, it's, it's difficult, I think, especially because the myth of progress seems to go forward to this great and wonderful shiny norm this idea of this abstract perfection you know because that seems to be the ideal with that myth of eventually everything will be perfect and i'm like yeah but where's the flexibility in that you know it, it's just perfect for who <laughs> yeah exa exactly and then we then we get into the you know difficulty of eugenics and all, all and genetic engineering and and I'm not even going to get into that, but you know what I mean? The, the idea of, you know, and this again, yeah, yeah. I could go on for ages about the, the issues with medicalization of disability, but yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to focus on philosophy? What got you into philosophy in the first place? The fun bit about that is I actually was going to go to university to study physics. And then um, I basically finished my A-levels, um, which was um, essentially the exams we do to get into uni. And I said, I can't crunch numbers for another four years. My head's going to explode. And I sat down and I thought, what do I like about physics? And the thing about physics was it was trying to understand um, the world, you know, trying to understand the universe, in fact. And I sort of sat there and I thought, I want to do that, but without maths. You know, and that, mm. and I started looking and I saw the philosophy course and went, you know what, that seems really, you know, kind of close, asking those questions. And so... I went and did my degree and uh, got hooked on the on the drug of philosophy. Um, and I'm, I'm a big believer, actually, in, weirdly, perhaps philosophy as a way of living, not in the sense of dry dry texts, but literally the idea of looking for wisdom. You know, it's it's looking for the best way to live. You know, finding the best way to live whether that's for us or for other people. And it's not about dictating, but it is about interrogating the life we live and go, what, what does this mean? Can I do this better? You know, um, 
you know, if if there was ever a a goal in my life, um, it would it would be to to know more, but not in the sense of abstract intellectual knowledge, but to understand more about myself and and the world. And so philosophy for me, it was it was mind blowing. I, I used to say it wasn't a proper seminar until I came out with a headache, you know, from from just having these things as you know, challenged. And I ended up doing my master's, but then uh, academia sort of bit me in that way that it does. Um, and I, I sort of said, you know, no, no thanks anymore. But then I've, you know, in the years since, I've just kept on and I've kept writing. So um, it's one of those things. I think philosophy is a valuable toolkit um, and the ability to question and for all that philosophers tend to write in extremely hard to read ways there is a certain joy to sitting down and going okay let's think about things and let's write about what we're thinking because it doesn't happen that often you know outside of in everyday life. So it's just an urge I, I kind of have to poke things, <laughs> if you like. Um, and I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I find it, it's a weird thing to say, but I read philosophy for pleasure quite a lot. So I'm always really interested in the twists and turns of the way other people think. Um, and whether that be the major, you know, Western canon of what dead white guys or, or some of the interesting stuff and I think it it interplays with my love of science fiction as well you know that another way of being another way of doing things I love Ursula K. Le Guin's stuff you know just for her imagining other worlds other you know political systems all these things is, they all kind of interlink for me in, in this idea of I don't think it's searching for the truth, but I think it's searching for a way to become a more whole you, you know, more complete, if you like. Um, well, not complete, but more of a... I, I don't know that much about, you know, um, psychology, but was it Jung was talking about individuation? Mm -hmm. You know, well... You know, that, that idea of becoming less diverted by all the, the bits of yourself that are going in different directions and trying to sort of bring it all together and go, look, I'm a complete system here. I may be complex and I have all these things, but, you know, it's I'm trying to become personally a better version of myself with every iteration. And for me... That involves going into the unconscious, you know, into the story realm, the dream time, whatever you want to call it, and bringing stuff up, you know, and, and writing about it. And that's that's what I do. And so, yeah, it's it's all into playing for me, as as far as I'm aware. <laughs> it's all it all turns into this strange interconnected mess, which is a good mess because the unconscious is messy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and mess is primordial as far as I'm concerned as well. You know, order and structure and all these other things, people like to lay upon that, but it's all messy, you know. And I think that mess and learning to deal with that mess, just in the same way disability, you have to learn and deal with things in front of your face. You can't really escape you know, you, sure, you can distract yourself, but eventually you're going to come back to the fact that, I don't know, you're in a wheelchair or your knee's screwed and you need to, to, to walk with a crutch or, you know, you're autistic and have problems massively processing things and that disables you or you have fatigue issues, all these things. There is, with disability, at least there is an inescapability, if you like. Um, and I think 
I think personally we need to recognize that there are some things in life that you can't escape. And of course, the ultimate one of those is currently death, you know, which again is why it reflects so heavily on, on what we do, because our culture is terrified of it. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard Craig Slee with his philosophy of Crip Cult and Beyond. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. And Craig's blog, coldalbion.net. C-O-L-D dash A-L-B I-O-N dot net. Two.
but most often only for David Bowie, like a flash, touching upon the individual sphere. If we, instead, look outside and far away, we can see, yes, homage. The living to what exactly? Up? That's the task of me, working things out. And they didn't even have to. Man, am I that? Resources to supplement formal training with what they fear most by a heart of stone. You, of many books, where shame is chiseled. When the sun sets, we are wrapped in darkness and despair. Space is empty, black, enormous, almost invisible. His life containing a myriad of tiny, tiny starlights and allegedly filled with devouring black holes came to experiments, threatening asteroids and aliens, Although, ass up, locking things we can't direct. Her very patient devastated me, drawing of the Renaissance and our senses. We are still sensory-driven more than anything else. Always have been. A, a new form of fire and fear. When the sun rises, the senses are alerted.
body, the future will know their own kind. Embellish human existence, but the convention forbids. Body corresponds to me, present throughout. In neural form of the occulted, tissue that structures, binds, and supports. It is for Vanessa. Vanessa.